0: Yeah, and so in in March of 1971, uh, this group called the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. There's a documentary on them. I can't remember what it's called, but they finally revealed their identity. Some of them There's a good
1: one on YouTube, but from Independent Lens that I watched. Oh, okay. Well, it actually interviews some of the uh, people who- Oh, okay. uh, Anonymously, but- it's very solid, and I'm I'm actually reaching out to them to try to talk.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're like they're like um, just like white people. Like many of them, uh, engaged in activism, you know, for reasons of faith. You know, like uh, uh, protesting the war. There, a lot of them were involved in like Christian kind of uh, anti-war movements. But you know, when they broke into this FBI field office in Pennsylvania, like the documents revealed that it wasn't like the FBI wasn't just like information gathering. You know, they weren't just gathering intelligence. They were trying to induce paranoia by targeting individuals specifically within these movements and kind of like promoting that idea that the FBI there's an FBI in every mailbox, meaning that they're reading mail. They were like they were targeting individuals in in the sense that they were, you know, making them think that they were under surveillance or perhaps they were being targeted by like a rival faction of an organization. So this was this was 1971 when all the the lid blew off this, and Hoover closes it down, because he's like this is embarrassing, you know, for the F- the FBI, and then he shortly dies afterwards. But um, there's all these tactics. I don't know if you want to get into it um, that they employ, such as a bogus mail, sending mail like letters written anonymously or by made up people trying to promote internal dissent within organizations like the Black Panther Party.
1: Well, not uh, only that, they were sending letters to professors suggesting yeah. that they uh, you know, take a stronger stance against communism. Mm.
0: Yeah, or they were saying that like they were threatening them to say like, wow, you're really lenient to these Marxist this Marxist ideology. But yeah, the F- there was an FBI um uh, you know, memo kind of trying to foment divisions between Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver in the Black Panthers party. And it was actually successful because, you know, um, it did create divisions and there were murders as a result of that. You know, there was a, there was a faction created and people began to kill each other.
1: It's the divide and conquer technique. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it literally, literally literally
0: said tactics to divide, conquer and weaken. (laughs) That's the, that's the the approach that they're taking. They They're got not... <laughs>
1: one play and they repeatedly use it. <laughs>
0: and it's, you know, it's been pretty successful, you know, so... Um, Wasn't that I wanted... Sun Tzu,
1: actually, who said... Yeah, that that no,
0: I, I wanted to read this quote uh, of this one uh, FBI document specifically talking about the Panthers. So, um, this one is like after... Um, uh, this is... So, in, in Los Angeles, they fomented divisions and distrust uh, between the US organization, which is the United Slaves Organization, which was considered a rival at the time of the Black Panther Party. But they were basically commending them. I mean, they're they're basically saying, I'll just read the document. And this is dated on 1968 uh, in November. For the information of recipient offices, a serious struggle is taking place between the Black Panther Party and the US organization. The struggle has reached such such properties that it is taking on the aura of gang warfare with attendant threats of murder and reprisals in order to fully capitalize on the the Panther and us organization differences, as well as to exploit all avenues of creating further dissent dissension in the ranks of the BPP recipient offices are instructed to submit imaginative. They're instructed to submit imaginative, in hard-hitting counterintelligence measures aimed at crippling the Black Panther Party, and they were successful. They did it. And My so, favorite
1: one is the Charles Manson incident.
0: What do you mean? Oh, like when they linked? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. That Mark Charles Manson could be linked to like FBI operate FBI and CIA operations that. Yeah, but indicate him.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, he was like around those kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's suspicion. There's no answer. There's no answers to it. There's just questions about what was his relationship with these CIA operations like operation chaos and the FBI counterintelligence programs, you know, and why was he trying to stoke a race war by blaming the Panthers for murders of, you know, Hollywood celebrities in, in, uh, you know, in, in Los Angeles.
1: Well and then oddly enough the one nobody talks about is how uh the camp right next door that they would stash cars on. He murdered uh they the family murdered two aim people there.
0: Well it wasn't the family, it was um it was there was it was an entirely different scenario, but it was very close. It was called Box Canyon, and uh the other one was called Camp Thirteen. They weren't necessarily related, but it was similar in the sense that they had like similar like hip white hippie like lifestyles um but they weren't like directly linked in that sense but um but yeah so there's there's another operation called black propaganda uh which is basically publishing fake documents from an organization uh and that you know of course that led to these this schism there's also gray propaganda is what they call it um which is different disinformation calling people with anonymous tips saying that you know there's There's some kind of feud between, you know, like, uh, so for example, like calling the uh, media uh, and saying, hey, there's a feud between the Black Panther Party and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And then the media starts picking up on it and starts reporting on it as if it's fact, you know, and there might be truth to that, but it's not something that, you know, people really want to get out. There's harassment arrests. Like, uh, movement leaders are targeted, harassed, um, not really because of criminality, but because of political activity. So they'll get stopped they'll, you know, they'll get frisked, all those kinds of things, infiltrators and provocateurs who foment illegal activities, ask people to do things, uh, the creation of what are called like pseudo gangs to like disrupt and discredit, um, organizations, like basically arming some folks to go out and like mess somebody up or something like that. Snitch jacketing and bad jacketing. You know, there was, it was effective against somebody like Stokely Carmichael, who was essentially called a CIA agent by Huey P. Newton even though there's no proof that he was, but he was seen as such a threat, uh, in the, not just in the Panthers, but also with the Black Power movement uh, in general, that he had to be like, neutralized and eliminated. So they, they couldn't delegitimize him you know, by what he was saying or his personal life. And so they chose, they chose to uh, essentially call him a cop, you know, uh, an informant. And that was effective as well, because it led to his expulsion and eventual kind of uh, leaving of, of the country. Assassinations. You know, you had the assassination of Fred Hampton. The FBI didn't necessarily play like a direct role in that, but definitely fomented the kind of paranoia and uh, surveillance of the Panthers that led to his his assassination. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm I'm about wrapping up here. So, and then of course targeting somebody like Martin Luther King, and these were all kind of like attempting to tie these movements, whether they were black power movements, whether they were, you know, whatever to the communist party or to communist influence. Um, but when, you know, that kind of well ran dry and the communist party kind of declined, uh, they began moving to like the SL, the Southern leadership. Oh, I always forget it. Southern leadership conference, SLC or something like that. Uh, the Martin Christian Lizard- Southern leadership yeah, conference, Southern Christian leadership conference. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There we go.
0: The SCLC. So, you know, somebody like, MLK, they try to tie him, you know, association with known communists, or they began going after Puerto Rican nationalists. But also, like, there's the fame there's a famous uh, documentary now called FBI MLK, which looks at how the FBI, like, did this, you know, alleged like audio recording of of MLK or uh, Martin Luther King Jr. having sex with women in, in January of 1963, and they 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 characterized him as quote unquote obsessive. He has obsessive degenerate urges, you know? So they're trying to like use racial, highly racialized terms to describe him, but also to discredit him and then sending him a poison pen letter, encouraging him to commit suicide as a result, you know? And then you, you see the evolution of the designation as the black nationalist hate groups. Um, so I just want to read one more like final quote. I'm sorry for taking up so much time, but I took a lot of notes on this and I was, um, no, this is good. This is uh, this is something that I thought was um... so. Uh, you know, Hoover kind of changes directions with the the counterintelligence program, uh, COINTELPRO, and begins to target Black nationalist groups or Black Power um, uh, organizations. And there's a 1967 memo that you know establishes intensive national counterintelligence program targeting Black national hate groups. And the quote the purpose of this new counterintelligence to Denver is to expose disrupt, misdirect, discredit, and otherwise neutralize activities of black nationalists hate group, hate type organizations and groupings, their leadership, spokesman, membership, and sp- supporters. In another memorandum, he writes, um, you know, to his, to his, uh, sent out, um, you know, to the same, to the same effect. A year later, he called on COINTELPRO operatives to, among other things, you know, prevent the coalition of militant black nationalist groups, prevent militant black national groups and leaders from gaining respectability, prevent the rise of black of a of a black messiah, and I think that the idea of uh, respectability, like it goes back to t- uh, Tom O'Neill's book, you know, Chaos, where it was like the Black Panthers were getting too close to Hollywood, you know, they were getting too close to, you know, uh, influential figures in the media. And so uh you know his theory is that the the Manson assassinations were somewhat of an attempt to discredit the Panthers to move the Hollywood elite away from any kind of sympathy but also to to make them so disgusted that they wouldn't want to be associated with like the hippie movement or the counterculture of the 1960s. Yeah so prevent the rise of a black messiah who would unify and electrify the militant black nationalist movement. You know Malcolm X might have been seen uh, such a, uh, being seen as such a ma- messiah. He is a martyr of the movement today. Martin Luther King, Stokely Carmichael, Elijah Muhammad all aspire to this position. Elijah Muhammad, who was the leader of National uh, Nation of Islam, is, le- is less of a threat because of his age. King could be a ver- very real contender for this position should he abandon his supposed obedience to quote white liberal doctrines or nonviolence. And embrace black nationalism, Carmichael has the necessary charisma to be a real threat in this way, so those I thought that was important to point out because like even if you read uh, somebody like uh John Trudell's FBI file, one of the things that they're so fascinated in is his charisma. there's like this man is intelligent, he can make you know hippies white he can make white hippies, he can turn them into militants, he can get them to say right on. And so they were obsessed with these individuals these men they're all men like well another
1: example that's never talked about is my uncle david swallow who had strategic bombers flown over his sundance at one point and he was accused of having bazookas yeah i mean that's insane
0: yeah yeah and there's an air force base like you know the ellsworth air force base is nearby and they typically don't fly over the city like rapid city but they definitely fly over the reservation so, yeah, I don't know if you want to get into your, your piece on this, well, move into the American s- Indian movement. S-
2: skip ahead a little. But
1: <laughs> 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 I mean, one of the big things to talk about, like I, I was saying, is the wounded knee. You know, that like this has a lot of, um, you can see like just like uh, the accusations towards the like reporters there. Uh, like, it's like, of course, people are reporting on this. It's the site of the last Indian massacre. And you have Indians surrounded again.
0: Well, yeah, you it, should you should uh, tell us what happened, because, you know, okay. like, there's a lead up to this. Then it I like, guess
1: you... not everybody is an expert like we are. <laughs> yeah, but...
0: Talk <laughs> so to like, us. Talk to us like second graders.
1: Talk to us like second graders. That's a perfect example. So the per- like. Well, like we were saying, there was the Sheet Mountain uh incident and then the later Route Rushmore, you know, forced out. You have all these, you know, occupations occurring across the country, the Winter Dam, you know, um that AIM is heading up or joining. That's the big thing is that they are making their way into these different places to basically get the name out there of the American Indian movement. You know, uh, like, uh, even right before Wounded Knee, you have Uane's uh, protest of uh, the uh, Mayflower 2 that, again, AIM would come to, and, and they seal the spotlight. That's
0: the United American Indians of New England. Yes. United <laughs> American. I, They've
1: just been on the podcast before, so I'm always like, everybody should just know.
0: You have to let them know, because I forget. Knows. I forget. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, You know, United American Indians of New England, you know, AIM comes in and helps them, but then steals the spotlight. Because what the media wants in this presentation, you know, are these very apparent divisions. And the the most apparent division is when you have real-life Indians like AIM fighting the real-life cowboys, which is the federal government. I mean, this is no better depicted than in the South Dakota society. I mean, honestly, the cowboy culture there is just... Mm. You, you can go there and see a prehistoric village. Keep in mind we lived in Teepees for a good while. So they call it a prehistoric village in South Dakota. That's like the kind of place you're in. It's a fantasy land, you know. And so this place was primed to be like just um festered with this anti-communist, anti-aim. Like they called them communists, of course. You know, and this was before all the sport they got, which we'll get into. So the, they're coming in after the death of Raymond Yellow Thunder. And Raymond Yellow Thunder is an absolutely horrible incident. I mean, it's it's a, it's a common incident at this time, unfortunately. Um, but what they do is they take him as the drunk Indian in a bar, make him strip naked and dance around while they beat the crap out of him, basically. And then he leaves. Um, you know, mostly naked, probably, you know, uh, and then stumbles around until they come and pick him back up, or maybe he, you know, there's a couple different accounts.
0: Yeah, I think like the the official account and what they were charged with was that they picked him. They saw him. It's called Indian rolling, essentially, is what they do, or Indian busting. That's what they said. And they pick him up, and you know, throw him in the back of a truck or the the car, throw him in the trunk, and you know, they pulled his pants down, kicked him into a dance hall embarrassed ran away you know was walking the streets picked him up again drove him around kind of like a rough ride you know that they did to freddie gray in in baltimore and he sustained injuries during that that rough ride like they're dro- driving over train tracks all that stuff and it called it caused like a, a hemorrhage in his brain which he died from like days later he didn't die immediately he he it was like sustained injuries though but they didn't murder him
1: well even then like the sad part is that a jailer takes him in because
0: yeah.
1: he, he he would do that to help this guy out, you know. He would put him in jail to help him.
0: Yeah, to give him and, a, a warm place to stay.
1: And like uh, he dies, you know, like because of this brain injury. You know, that's a very real and sad case of the reservation. Like it's it, it it's just one of those stories that perfectly encapsulates the cap the uh, contradictions of the time. Mm-hmm. You know. And so aim comes in and they end up having this huge riot in Gordon, Nebraska. My uh, uncle describes it as when he went there, he saw Russell Means stand up to a cop and flip the hat off his head. And after he saw that, he was like, you can do that, (laughs) you know? And so it literally just took seeing somebody do it. To inspire these people to do it. And you want to talk about somebody they're obsessed with the charisma of Russell means, (laughs) you know, he was a charismatic dude, you know, he was fairly well read, I wouldn't say he was the most intelligent of the, you know, aim leaders or whatever. But like, you know, he was a fairly well read person. And like, he definitely did have a charisma to him. So, like, these kind of people always – in cab- and, like, this gets into the whole Wavoka thing. And, of course, the uh, the FBI probably read Black Elk Speak and thought, this is what AIM's trying to do. You know what I mean? Um, and so a- Black Elk Speak basically talks about a messiah coming to mm-hmm. lift the people into a better state of being. And so, like, you know, there's really – I mean, it's – I don't even know how to describe it. Just this, you know, this belief in the that the all their needs is like one messiah and then they start targeting certain people is is what you see go on in um w- the Wounded Knee incident. So they they uh they're gathering at Calico beforehand. Yeah. And uh Well,
0: I mean it's it's important to also just point out that it's like at this time AIM is mostly an urban-based organization based out of Minneapolis. Ooh. It's you know uh Russell Means gets recruited in Cleveland and so these connections uh with the reservation are cemented. They they gain credibility in Pine Ridge because they like you said, they stood up in Gordon, Nebraska. They were like, you know, this can't this can't stand. And so they gained that respect. And that's how they ended up in Calico, because they were gonna meet with oh there's sorry, an aside, but there's an FBI file that I read, which is really funny. So they when they did their Grand Ribbon or the Red Ribbon jury, or what did they call it? Red Ribbon. I can't remember grand what jury. they call them. It's yeah, Red, red ribbon, ribbon Grand Jury. Red Ribbon Grand Jury. Um, there was a kid, a mother's kid came out and said, you know, these there's these traitors at Wounded Knee, they're really racist and they were mean to my child. Um, you know, they there are they they were native traders. I think the Gildersleeves, one of the Gildersleeves was native, but it was like what land owned by like white people and they were just exploiting culture. And so AIM, after you know, winning the the, the Raymond Yellow Thunder case, drove to Wounded Knee. And just like began to harass these people and you know, so there was there was building tensions to this. And, you know, like when they arrive at Calico, it's like they didn't intend to take over the wounded knee, but they were being they were making these important connections with the the traditional leadership at the time and the FBI was paying attention.
1: And so at Calico is where like, you know, the traditional people are the ones who came up with the idea Mm -hmm. to go into wounded knee. And it's when, you know, a group of women say you know, where are our warriors that, you know, if everybody gets on board and the elders say, go and make your stand there, you know? And so, like, they go, they, they, there's this whole long thing that is for a whole other episode to go into real detail, but lean as to say, they take over the Gilder Sleeves because they have a bunch of weapons there. They're able to basically get all the Hamlet to, the ones who don't leave initially to agree to stay, to protect them, which is odd enough. Like, the Gildersleeves literally yell at the FBI, saying, you're the ones who, who, who did this, you're the ones who caused this, you know, we're not leaving or else you'll come in and kill all of them. You know, even in the media, like, there's this huge thing where they start, like, closing down uh, media access to wounded needs. So there became a press release place Knee. there's a, bu- a bunch of people come in, it comes from all over the country, and they end up getting the support from, you know, communist countries across the world, and of course these countries are going to want to cover this place, and the, you know, film it and stuff like that. And so there was a Soviet Union reporter who uh, <laughs> caused a lot of suspicion in the encampment, and I mean, like, communists, of course, were coming from all around the country, and even like some of, like, Carter Camp has some connections to um, L.A. AIM. Uh, and Carter Camp led the Oklahoma contingent, which was the second largest group of people to come. Um, and, and you have, I mean, speaking of connections, you have like Chicano uh, nationalists coming up. I mean, yeah, everybody's coming just to, uh, you know, get a piece of the action. You know, like this is the stand that's happening. It's how people felt about Chaz, I'm sure. You know, I mean, I don't think, I don't think that's the same. <laughs> I wouldn't go so far, but I'm I sure did. people felt the same about Chaz for a contemporary. It wasn't at all close, but you know, whatever. Um, but it's interesting to see that they still used these similar groups, like they focused on uh, the black nationalists in order to. Push division in Chaz. So mm. it, it's a, it's, you see these continuations. I mean, I would like to study Chaz more in depth. Uh, but as soon as you start talking to those people, you're on a list nowadays. And I don't think they're going to have too much to say besides, like, I want to know some little details that I would have to interview everybody to know, basically, until mm. history tells me who's actually worthwhile talking. But like out of the wounded knee, uh, incident, you had sh- 276 some trials something like that um that were still being pursued and so the biggest one of course is dennis banks and russell means where you come to find out that um well i guess it's not it wouldn't be till 75 but at this time dennis's right hand man is this man douglas durham and douglas durham uh Made his way into the camp at Knee and gets introduced actually by uh, AIM leaders. So he's already been working his way in, and this he openly admits to being a former cop, you know, former Marine, yada yada yada. He had a bunch of so, uh, he he got arrested. Well, like I kicked off the force because he was investigating this warehouse that was getting stuff stolen as a private contractor, and then was then stealing stuff from that warehouse. You know, like they were doing the crimes. It's the same way, like the Gretchen Whitmer uh, murders were stopped basically because the FBI started doing it. You, you can, like he had ties to the CIA and stuff behind that too. So, you know, this could all have been part of this huge, bigger picture that we don't know of. Or, you know, he's just this dirty cop that, you know, is trying to make a quick buck as quickly as he can. And he finds his way to wound a knee and then schmoozes his way in with, the uh, one of the co founders, Dennis Banks. Yeah, he and claims he,
0: he claims to be reporting from some like fake like lefty... uh, Pax Americana, yeah, or something like yeah,
1: that, <laughs> like yeah. something super imperial sounding. Actually, when you think about it, <laughs> like
0: totally oh. sus from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, if I ever see a leftist newspaper that has PAX in its name, I'm like, why are you a Latin fetishist?
0: And I think like like even, the Founding Fathers, even like uh, anime, like said later, anime Aquash, who we'll talk about later, said that he she was really <laughs> suspicious of a uh, of a native who dyed his hair black because he was dyeing his hair black in Wounded Knee.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I like. I don't know. I, I, like it blew my mind when I saw uh, my auntie, like my uh, auntie Nyla, dye her hair for the first time. I was literally like, "Whoa!" Didn't want to show the gray too much, huh? <laughs> like,
0: it's a good day that, to dye. It's a good <laughs> day to die.
1: <laughs> That's the worst joke you've made ever. I think Dave
0: Dave Hill told me that. <laughs> oh yeah. So, anyways, continue. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, like, uh, oh, where were we? Um, Oh, so the trials, you know, like, essentially this entire time an FBI informant is sitting amongst the defense. As they're talking to
0: their lawyers, and they're supposed to be attorney-client privilege, right?
1: Yeah, so he he claims to have never reported any of this, but the man also, also admitted to being an informant without a fight, as if he had been prepped. To say certain things, because that's exactly what AIM went and did, is they brought him to do press releases. So he said whatever he wanted to do, say, you know, I mean, he admits it, sure. But, like, I don't think they quite understood the implications of letting an FBI informant talk. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, And so, like, he, he plays such a vital role. And it's for at least two, three years after the Wounded Knee incident that he's able to maintain this position of power where he's even the uh, national director of security for him. You know, you literally could not talk to the leadership without going through him. And if you wanted money, it went through him. So he was skimming stuff off the top. I mean, one of the biggest examples is when Annie Mae follows him to California uh, uh, after he, he was forced to leave the Minneapolis office um, and. You know, she does this huge fundraising campaign, and he uh, he starts giving away the shirts for free. Uh, like they made ribbon shirts, and so he just starts giving them away for free. So it, it, it's you know it's it's little things like that where you're like, well, hold on, that doesn't seem bad to give people clothes for free, but literally he's reducing any of the income that the California branch has, and California is a good base of recording recruiting. Because like uh, Dennis Banks would end up getting asylum there, you know, like that's the position the, um, I don't know, community in California has uh, towards aim is that they were willing to give asylum against the federal government to uh, a terrorist, you know, like that's, that would never happen today. You would, you just would not yeah. see that today. You know, maybe, maybe if like Jesse Ventura was still like in charge somewhere, maybe then. <laughs> but if, <laughs> thank God he's not. I mean, like it's really one of those things, and it's Jerry Brown who actually does the uh, asylum, and that kind of, you know, that really, um, I honestly think it was just because he happened to be getting shit on by the dead Kennedys. That he was willing to let Abe come chill around. You know what I mean? That's just more of a joke. But, uh, (laughs) you know, whenever I think of Jerry Brown, I think of him as a pretty, you know, fascistic guy. And I guess that's just all politicians in America most of the time. But, yeah, they end up losing this case to Dennis and Russ. And, um, you know when they keep losing these cases, because this is after they lost that one case with the Camden 28. Mm. So, you know, they're, they're hitting loss after loss with groups that they feel should be an easy win for them. You know, these are clear cut people who broke the law. They stole something from the FBI and made them out to be bad people, you know, but then when the commission, the Warren commission, I believe it is, uh, comes out, one of the, uh, Oh, I can't think of his name, the guy who speaks at the end or whatever. He goes, you know, what you have just done is showcased how there has been a series of crimes committed by the FBI, a series of crimes intended to stop the First Amendment rights of many Americans. And, uh, you know, nothing you, nobody knew about this. Not nobody in the government knew about this. You, you had Republicans back then saying, oh, I think. There's not a single thing that Hoover doesn't put up on the table. He's just the kind of guy who tells you everything you ask for. And it's like, no, he's not. He's fucking Hoover. He's an insane man who, like you said, essentially is acting as a fourth branch of the government. Like that, that's a terrifying position to give somebody who was first off his only like achievement in the FBI was that he was such a good bureaucrat. That is the only compliment people can give him was he was an incredibly gifted bureaucrat. When that is your description, you're probably one of the most anal retentive people I've ever met. And I am going to be pissed if I ever have to work for you or with you. So I feel like a lot of people, there was a culture of compliance created, you know? And so like all these people were willing to do whatever he wanted. And so you have these people with Douglas Durham, there's no way they weren't doing exactly what Hoover wanted. There's just no way. Like there's even a, an account of FBI agents listening at the door. I believe during the Leonard Peltier trial, was it? It's one of the trials though, involved with, there's so many of them, but literally at one point, FBI agents are listening to the door like that. You couldn't be more obvious about breaking the law. I mean, that's, it, it 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 it's a cartoon it's a cartoon literally and it it led to the murder of Anime Aquash you know and that murder comes around because after wounded knee you had this huge culture of uh fear that was uh caused by the goons which is the guardians of Oglala Lakota nation they were led by this guy Dick Wilson Richard Nil Wilson who was voted in as chairman And then when they tried to kick him out, he was in charge of his own impeachment and just couldn't get kicked out. So, like, it it was a pretty rigged system to begin with. And the FBI were supplying him with high-powered rifles, armor-piercing bullets. I mean, there's all these guns being moved in, and supposedly they only came after Wounded Knee started. You know, I, I whether that's true or not, I don't know but I'd be willing to guess they probably started moving in stuff around the Gordon, Nebraska riot. You know what I
0: mean? I don't think they were moving in stuff. I think they were just like following the movements and like actually trying to see what these guys were going to do. Definitely surveilling them. Well,
1: but that's the thing is with the surveillance, it just, it's so quickly that you have full on, you know, arsenals there, Mm -hmm. you know, it is very quickly that these things gate there and it, Once the jumping ball incident happens in 76, you know, AIM was building gardens around the Pine Ridge, is what the elders say. You know, if their goal is building gardens, I don't know what weapons they have. You know what I mean? Maybe there's a hunting rifle, a couple pistols, because Pine Ridge is not the place to be without a gun. It's just not. I, (laughs) I almost got attacked by coyotes last time I was out there. It's a very rural place. Not to mention the rings of uh, kidnappers that now exist out there. Not to mention just drunks that like will run you over for fun. White people who will run you over thinking you're drunk for fun. Uh, police riding on the wrong side of the road for fun, just to freak people out. It's it, it, there. There isn't really law there. You can pretty much get away with murder if you're good about it the many times you hear people talk about bodies in the hills that nobody knows about it's a scary amount of times when you're out there and it's probably true <laughs> that's the scariest part because nobody's gonna go look for you it's just not gonna happen and so the fact that Anna anime's body is you know it found so quickly or you know maybe not but you know they find her pretty close to the highway it's not that far. I've gone and seen the spot. It's not that far of a walk. It's very easy to go. Th- she goes onto this white rancher's, like falls off a white rancher's ridge with a gunshot to the back of the head, apparently. You know, we don't really know who, who did it for sure, you know, but there's been people put in prison for it, you know. And so, y- you have this murder is probably the only murder on Pine Ridge solved that
0: quickly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, well, it wasn't found so- that. I mean- found that quickly, not solved, found that quickly. And I mean, it's one of the few bodies that they actually like did a lot to identify. In fact, they did so much. You could almost say they did unnecessary things like chopping off her hands. And what even blows my mind is when you listen to Roger Amiot talk about finding her body, the first thing he notices is her large turquoise bracelet. And this turquoise bracelet is trademark of her. But when the FBI are looking for, you know, identifier, like people identify they don't mention this large turquoise bracelet or anything. You know, they really make it difficult for people to actually identify the body. In fact, they don't give people time to before they're already burying the body, which ends up being sued to be re-exhumed. And um, even by that time, the decomp- decomposition still isn't that bad. You know what I mean? So- you know, something isn't adding on. either A, W, like the, the official story claims she died fairly close to when they found the body. So that could be true. Or she died earlier in the winter and the winter helped preserve her body because it was abnormally cold. That's believable. It is believable uh, because it's a super cold place. I mean, it's oftentimes Death Valley ends up being the coldest place in America and the hottest place in America every year. You know, that's an achievement, but it's just open wind. So it cuts straight to the bone and she's found in like a a windbreaker in the middle of winter and tennis shoes. So she, it doesn't seem like she was with somebody she wouldn't have trusted. So, you know, either this cultural paranoia got her or the FBI did it. You know what I mean? Somebody was so paranoid that they murdered her or the FBI was the one who murdered
0: her. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, we're jumping ahead a lot. Um, but I think like, it's important to point out that like, you know, we, we, we can get into this in a different podcast episode, but
1: it's really hard to give these entire events in full detail because they're, their own books half the time. Yeah. I mean, but they deserve, yeah,
0: they deserve the attention, like, because it, they are complicated issues. I mean, why NMA was singled out, you know, um, not just by the FBI, but by aim, like what led to the kind of suspicions that she, you know we don't have time to get into it here but i think it's important to point out that the immense amount of mobilization of resources against the american indian movement at this time period um was quite incredible and unprecedented um and so you have the end allegedly of the pro program um no longer functional no longer doing what it you know what it it was said it was doing for the last 30 years but you have similar tactics being deployed by uh, the FBI against the uh, against AIM specifically and you have the armament and the militarization of the reservation and the creation of like what is you know what could be called a dirty war between factions of gu- between different factions of the reservation no doubt legitimate grievances against each other but also no doubt fomented and exacerbated by the FBI in its counterintelligence programs and i think it's important to point out though it's like also like i don't i'm not entirely sure there were like definitely uranium projects underway uh you know there was attempts to do mining in the black hills at that time but i don't think the fbi was really orchestrating or working hand in glove with these energy corporations but nonetheless i think they believed that aim posed an existential threat to the united states even though they they were from the minorities of minorities, they weren't very large in numbers and and but they had incredible influence and like moral authority that really worried the FBI. And it's like the same like why invade Vietnam? You know? Vietnam didn't hold any resources. And it's because it represented a threat in terms of like the spread of communism. And I would say the aim not necessarily spread of communism, but definitely anti Americanism. Anti-colonial like resistance um, that was effective at changing views uh, of Americans towards Native people, and also changing views of of Americans towards their government, and that's an incredibly dangerous, you know, that's an incredibly dangerous formula, and also they were very international, but that's again. Another Well, another and part, even then, like, that kind of comes
1: after discrediting of AIM that happens after the Leonard Peltier, because, like, a lot of people, the histories, at least, that are being told, it dies down after Wounded Knee and the Leonard Peltier incident, and they sort of just act like AIM died off. But in reality, like, it became even more influential, at least to the marginalized communities. You know, I don't know necessarily in the national discourse, but, like, people are still talking about... uh the Redskins, well, I guess they're not the Redskins anymore, finally. But, um, you know, people are still talking about the Washington Redskins up until 2021. And that's something that Clyde Bellacourt started. You know, like the, and like these are all things that people have heard of and heard the discussion on. But because of mystification, whether purposefully or not, I mean, it's sort of just like the culture that's been pushed forth so long that it just reinvents itself, like it feeds into itself now. Um, and so like, you know, these arguments that they've made and we've seen the results of their politics. They've made actual changes that could be seen today. You know what I mean? And so like, these aren't one, of, it's not one of those groups that are like, Oh, like the weather, uh, uh, weatherman underground, What's Yeah, the weather underground, weather underground, like, um, Sure they did a lot but what actually changed in Wisconsin Wisconsin's a right wing hellhole I go there all the time I it sucks it, I do not like it the only place I really like is Green Bay and that's because they're uh, they're a big union town you know it almost makes sense why I like them better they still are a bunch of right-wingers, you know, and um, it's still really racist towards natives down there. Like, you could still, like, say that shit and get away with it, you know, up here in the Midwest, at least. I'd like to think that on the East Coast and California, at least, if you, you know, even if you say Indian, you're, I would like to think you'd get yelled at. Maybe I have too high of hopes. But um, it, it's definitely something that can be seen. And it's something that our society acts on are these, these events that have occurred As we've explained in this episode and many other episodes since the beginning of the project, the colonial Mm -hmm. project, I don't know how to describe it. It's like one of those things where it's like in order to prevent tragedies, you have to know your history or whatever, like in order to prevent history from repeating. I can't think of the quote, but like that's what comes to mind.
0: Yeah, no, it's I think it's it is important to keep that in mind. And like, you know, I also think it's a good place to kind of like stop uh this this discussion because we can go <laughs> I could go on and on forever. Forever. Literally. But, <laughs> but uh I think the next we're gonna try to line up some guests in the coming, you know, weeks um to talk about the FBI repression of the Black Panthers, also just general uh, infiltrators and informants um in the movement and then probably move into larger discussions around the wounded knee trials and um, some of the bigger cases that came out of the FBI's targeting and repression of the American Indian movement. So, one thing we should um,
1: mention is how the FBI repeatedly paid people or like yeah. threatened them into just like giving false testimonies on the reservation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's we can actually talk about how that. they built their case against my uncle. Yeah, it was family members.
0: Yeah, no, that's an important one too. And informants play a huge role. I don't think. Also, you know, is you know we can talk about this later, but there's informants most people don't know they're informants because they're not being told they are informants but any anytime you talk to a police officer and anytime you talk to you know uh, an agent of the state you you become an, an informant in their report whether you're paid or not or whether you consider yourself one or not. So I think that's important to remember that many of the people who appear as informants in a lot of these reports may not think of themselves as informants others do others like make careers out of it you know. <laughs> But um, I think this is Go a good place to stop. on, speaking tours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is a good place to stop. Um, and, and, you know, f- we're going to be coming out with more um, exclusive Yoded episodes on the FBI's war against the American Indian Movement and the Black Panther Party. Um, stay tuned. Support the Oh, if you're listening to this, you already support the podcast. But tell your friends. <laughs>
1: you can support my podcast. You can as support well. the
0: Band of Turtle Islands.
1: No, actually, it's called Zagato's Tin Can. Okay. <laughs> uh,
2: just like, Give me money. All please.
0: right. Well, <laughs> we'll see you later, Doksha. Doksha.